morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get into our time of, of teaching today. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, um, you kind of know what today's going to be about. We've been uh, kind of introducing today as a day that we're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about um, our culture, our um, kind of where we're at in our, our country, as well as what that means for the church. And, and, uh, and so we, we've been in this series in Ephesians uh, for the past few months. And today we just thought it would, it would be healthy for us as a community to take a break and, and talk about some of these things. So we're really going to examine today uh, the role that race has played in the church and continues to play in the church and in, in our country and the ways that um, these categories of race that have been constructed in our society um, has, have honestly been used to exploit people in our country and kind of what, what that means for us um, and, and how those how people have been exploited and how their, um, their status as image bearers and people that bear the image of God, how that's been um, just demeaned in, in people in our country. And so we're going to look at what does it look like for us as a church to bear witness to the fact that everyone bears the image of God, that everyone has uh, the image of God within them. And especially what does it mean for a church like us, Ethos Church, that's predominantly white, uh, predominantly upper middle class. What does it mean for us to have a role in that and to bear witness to that, okay? So um, the issue um, of this conversation that we want to have today, that we want to begin and enter into is, the, is really tough because I'm really inexperienced in this conversation. <laughs> um, I have very little idea about how to lead us on a journey like this. So um, today I've invited uh, just one of my best friends, absolutely best friends in the world. His name's Daniel. And uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit today. And we're just going to have sort of a dialogue about um, some of these things. So uh, Daniel, you can come on up. Go ahead and give Daniel a, a big hand. Um, I'm going to read a quick bio and make him feel really awkward. Um, and, uh, then, uh, and then we'll begin our conversation. So uh, Daniel grew up in Dallas, Texas. Anybody from Texas? Um, and uh, he studied religion and the arts at Belmont University. We went to school together. He moved to Memphis after graduating in 2013 uh, to be trained by the Memphis Teacher Residency. It's a program called MTR in Memphis. Um, and he currently teaches American history at East High School in Memphis, where he serves as the chair of the social studies department. Um, he teaches for Union, Union University as well as an adjunct professor and has developed the cultural foundations course for new MTR residents. And that's a course that's divine, designed to develop uh, their residents into culturally competent classroom leaders. Okay, so um, on a more personal note, um, as I said, Daniel is just absolutely one of my best friends in the world. I've known him for the past seven years and uh, just had the privilege of walking with him, seeing his heart and his passion grow for the Lord, but also um, seeing his heart grow for this conversation about race and culture and and how that intersects with faith. Uh, so I'm being honest when I say this to you guys today. I didn't invite Daniel today because he's my friend. Um, that's part of it, I guess. But um, I invited Daniel to come talk with us today and speak with us today because of how um, incredibly experienced he is in, in this conversation, um, how, uh, how, with how much clarity he can communicate about the areas of race and politics and faith and how all, all that inner, uh, is interwoven together. So um, he's just more capable of talking about this than just about anybody I know. So I hope um, this is very uh, just beneficial for us as a community. So um, yeah, Daniel, welcome. We're glad to have you today. Uh, we're we're going to have some time for table discussion afterwards, just um, as a side note. We're going to have some table discussion and some time for Q&A. So after we finish our sort of spiel for the next 15 minutes or so, uh, you'll have some opportunity to discuss at your tables and then ask some questions to Daniel and, and myself. So if you have questions throughout, just like write them down. You can put them down on your phone. I uh, can write them down on a piece of paper and 
And we'll also be uh, available afterwards to talk. And um, just as a, another quick note before we get started, um, we, we are by no means assuming or um, have the perception that we're going to be perfect in this conversation. Um, this is a really tough, uh, heavy thing to talk about, right? And so uh, we don't have all the answers. We don't have it all figured out. Um, but it is so worth it to, to have the conversation and to begin the conversation. And this is a conversation that we are entering into that's been going on for a long time. And we're just beginning to become aware um, of how uh, we can be more aware of it to, to lay down some of our ignorance in that area. So, um, Daniel, I want to start off by just inviting you to tell your story a little bit about how you grew up, what your church life was like, Belmont, what got you to Memphis. Just kind of tell us a little bit about your story. Um, so, I went to Belmont, right? I grew up in Texas. I grew up actually in a pretty um, diverse neighborhood. The suburbs of Dallas are a complicated place. Um, but most of my closest friendships and churches were predominantly white uh, bubbles. And uh, I didn't realize that at the time, right? And my church in Pennsylvania was that way. My church when I went to church here in Nashville was that way. Um, and so I ended up at Belmont, and uh, the Lord is putting things on my heart about caring for people outside of myself and outside of my bubble, right? I'm learning what that's about. I'm recognizing the calls of the prophets and the words of Jesus talking about um, the margins and the least of these and people that, um, who have been given a lot, a lot is required from them, right? I'm reckoning with these texts. And I take a class I remember called Poverty and Justice. I think y'all been to Belmont taking that class. It was incredible. Um, and I remember reading, it's like awakening moment. I was reading the speeches of Dr. King, right? Classic way to understand the world. But I remember sitting on a bench at Belmont reading speeches from Dr. King. I don't even know if I knew that he was a Christian leader particularly, right? I didn't know much about him. Uh, I was 20 years old and largely ignorant of people's experiences outside of my own. And I remember reading it and realizing, uh, man, Christians have a word to speak to social realities, Right? Uh, here is a black pastor from the South speaking to the realities of the Southern United States and the U.S. in general, right? And I started to see this connection between um, my faith in Jesus and what my call in the world was, right? And so I began to ask the Lord what he would have me do. And I had spent a summer in California doing some urban ministry stuff in a predominantly uh, Mexican immigrant neighborhood. And... I wondered, well, how could I make money to pay my student loans off uh, while doing something like that? And so I thought about teaching. And so I moved uh, to Memphis right after I graduated. And I've been there for four years now. I've been going to my fifth year of teaching high school American history this year. And moving there has dramatically shaped the way I see the world, has changed me um, through relationships and through entering into broken systems. I see the way things don't work. I see the way the world is experienced outside of my own bubble. Um, and I've had to constantly renegotiate my role in the world. What does it mean to be um, a white guy in the world? Right? What does it mean to come from a place where my dad was an engineer, right? where we had enough money usually? Um, and so seeing myself in new categories, right? When I was at Belmont, you know, they have you describe yourself in your first class. is like, how would you introduce yourself? You know? I would have said, you know, I like... Uh, playing guitar, I like playing basketball, I like the Dallas Cowboys, you know, whatever, I'm from Texas, these kind of things. I wouldn't have described myself as a race or really as my gender, right? I might have said I'm a, you know, I'm a male, I'm white, you know, if I'm really listing all the adjectives. But I think that largely I was taught that I was raceless, right? That I was just normal. Uh, and that, right, I mean, seriously, that's what we are so often taught is that 
there's this centering of whiteness in America. Um, and so I was just blind to a lot of things. Um, but going to Memphis and um, you know, entering into my school, so my school is, um, you know, almost everybody is low income and it's you know, 99% African American. Uh, and so being in that context, right, being, a, being in the minority in a room for the first time in my life has shaped me, right? Um, and then my church in Memphis is trying to be a multi-ethnic church um, and multi-class, and that's really complicated. Um, but I, I, you know, we're involved in a certain zip code, a certain neighborhood in Memphis, and so I've lived there for a couple years. Uh, and that's also shaped the way I see the world, just in a regular way, right? I'm just a neighbor. I'm not there to fix. I'm not there to change the world, but simply to be present, talk to people, uh, watch a kid every once in a while, ask for some milk when I didn't go to the store because I'm lazy, you know? Um, so those contexts are what I'm coming from and what has shaped me. And so I'm not very far removed from this bubble in Nashville. So I think there's still a word to be spoken to this bubble from a person that has lived the bubble, right? So I don't at all think that I'm you know, ahead of the game or farther along, really. This process of understanding your identity in America and in racialized terms uh, is an ongoing process for a long time. You never arrive. You don't just get it one day. It's always re-examining, it's always confessing, repenting, admitting when um, you've just missed the boat. Um, so we'll talk more about that as we go on, but that's, that's my basic story. Cool, so a lot of you were here a few months ago when we, you know, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians for the past few months, and there's a, a text in Ephesians 2 where it talks about um, you know, the big phrase of the day that we really drove home was how through Jesus, uh, this thing called the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. It's a pretty loaded phrase, but, you know, we talked about how, um, you know, there were these people, the Jews and the Gentiles, that they were totally hostile towards one another in ancient context. And because of Jesus, these dividing walls were broken down between people. So it wasn't just this, okay, to be a follower of Jesus was just, okay, it's just me and my relationship with God. It's just kind of an individual personal pursuit that's the, the whole part of Christianity. And, and what we really tried to drive down there um, on that day was that when we, when we have this relationship with God vertically, there, there's a change horizontally between us and other people and that we begin to be reconciled to other people specifically and especially those that are different from us racially, culturally, socioeconomically. And so um, this is a really big idea we've been wrestling with and we said, hey, we wanna come back and revisit this in a couple months. So that's, that's kind of what today is about. But, but this idea of being reconciled to other people um, in our lives and not just to God is, is an idea that's all over scripture, right? And I know you've had several moments throughout the scriptures or things that you've seen that have been those awakening moments that have caused you to reorient your life. So talk about maybe one of those other places in the scriptures that has affected you. A passage that's big for me is 2 Corinthians 5. So you're, Paul's kind of going through these different ministries given to Christians. And this is not just for some Christians, for, not just for like your outreach pastor, right? But he says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? Because we have been reconciled to God through Christ. Now we are ministers of reconciliation to the world, right? That vertical reconciliation, right, that we talk about so often in the evangelical church now has to be lived out. It's not just what we're saved from, Right? I grew up in a Baptist church, talk about fire insurance, right? You're safe from hell. That's real Southern Baptist stuff, shout out. Uh, but now, now I believe in Jesus. Now I'm being renewed daily, transformed from glory to glory. What is my role? What am I saved for? And so largely the evangelical church and the churches that I've been a part of have not um, adequately addressed what we do now, how we love our neighbor now, 
right? We talk about loving God, but what do we do now horizontally? Uh, and so that passage for me is extremely important in recognizing what my role is as a Christian, what I'm saved for. Now I'm going to be a person that bears witness to the kingdom of God and the world, this new reality that's been purchased for us by the blood of Christ, right? Now I can have an allegiance to Jesus, which trumps my allegiance to anything else, my social class, my culture, my race. Now I have a greater commitment, right? And that's all a part of this horizontal reconciliation after recognizing that we've been made new by Jesus. And so we, we could go into the, the reasons why we believe this is important, and we'll, that'll be kind of interlaced throughout the rest of this conversation. Um, we could talk about it for a while. There's a lot of reasons why this is important. Um, but let's just kind of take, okay, this is an important reality. We believe this is like in the scriptures, in, in what Jesus has in mind for his church, um, to be reconciled to our neighbors, particularly those that are different than us. Um, so why don't we see this happening? Why are we seeing... Still, even though segregation isn't as outright and um, explicit in the world today, um, why do we still see largely segregated communities of faith like this? Sure. Um, so I, I'm going to go into a little bit of uh, philosophy slash history, so follow me for like three and a half minutes, okay? Um, this idea of dualism is really rooted in Greek philosophy, and Greek philosophy was the philosophy of the day in the first century, um, the Middle East and the Mediterranean, right? And Dualism basically splits the physical from the spiritual, right? And we are very much so victims of this as evangelicals today. And I'll get into that even more specifically for the American context. But if you ever studied Plato or any kind of philosophy like that, you have this idea that, okay, here's a mug, but up somewhere else in a non-material world, there's this form, they call them platonic forms, and that's better because it's not material, right? We've demeaned the material world, okay? So people were just saying, like, material world is bad, right? We don't trust, we don't think bodies are good. We think that um, physical things are bad, right? And the spiritual is what we're really aiming for, right? And you probably recognize that. Like, that's what I was taught growing up, largely, or it was implied, at least. Um, and so then you get to certain social contexts from which people create theology. So you look in, like, the Great Awakening, right? Maybe you heard about this in high school history class. But the part you don't hear is uh, the 1730s. So... Yeah, everyone knows, right? Um, so like the, the early 18th century, right, it's, there's this revival spreading through the colonies. And um, the problem is there's a certain social location, right? Slave owners in the United States did not want to give up their economic production. So they said, well, if this person, if this slave becomes a Christian, it doesn't affect their social reality. It only affects their soul. So we've further delineated soul from body, right, based out of specific social location. And then you jump ahead and there's this recognition that, uh, like in the, in the late 19th century, so we're in the late 1800s now, there's this recognition by evangelicals that, that we have largely not addressed social realities in our world. Uh, and so you had this movement called the social gospel. Some of you may have heard of this. I'd only heard about it in a negative light, and for a reason I'll get into in a second. But this is a recognition by evangelicals, a woman named Jane Addams. She moves into immigrant neighborhoods in Chicago and says, My, the Jesus I know cares about the industrial laborer who's being exploited. The Jesus I know cares about the person who can't speak the language here, right? And is having trouble adapting and is being taken advantage of by, by whatever political machine was there. Um, and so the social gospel begins to speak to a lived reality. And here's, here's the thing that was so helpful for me. A guy named Walter Rauschenbusch wrote a lot of the doctrines around the social gospel. And he notes that evangelicals had largely relied on Pauline epistles, which have more spiritual guidelines. Some physical ones, certainly, like how communion works and whatnot. 
but then also about the accounts from Genesis 1 through 3. Right? So our conception of sin was largely individual because the account we're looking at involves Adam and Eve and a tree. Right? There's no society there yet to show the broader implications of sin. Right? So we just have this doctrine that says, oh, I sin. Maybe it hurts my wife. Maybe it hurts one person in my life. But there's no systems that are born out of sin. Right? But clearly we know that broken people make broken systems. So we have to acknowledge that systems can be sinful too. Structures can be sinful. Um, and so that's a really helpful corrective from the social gospel that helped me see why I thought sin was so individual and, and vertical and there was no horizontal component to reconciliation. And they get that mainly from, from the prophets. You know, this is something that Daniel and I were having a conversation last night about how, you know, you, if you were to read the Old Testament prophets, you know, there's all these words where the prophets are going to come on behalf of God to the people of Israel and just like call them out for their neglect of uh, justice. You know, so you get these words like in Isaiah 1, 17, where it says, uh, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead for the widow's cause. These are the types of words of the prophets or Jeremiah 22. Um, the Lord says, do justice and righteousness. It's this action verb, like do justice, deliver people from the hand of the oppressor of him who has been robbed. Do no wrong violence to the resident alien or the fatherless or the widow. Um, Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. And then in, you look at Amos 5 and you know, there's this moment in the, is, the history of the Israelites where they're exiled to Babylon, right? Some of that is because of like idolatrous worship and some of these things, but like the main reason that Amos points out in Amos 5, it basically says, because you have trampled upon the poor and the marginalized in your society, God is gonna exile you from the land of Israel to Babylon. It's like one of the main reasons. So the whole point is that um, their faith, their walking with God um, has a, like a very um, particular word to say about the social realities of people. That, that sin, like you were saying, has social costs and this prophetic word throughout the, throughout the Bible is all about how the social realities of people are important to God, and the social gospel really embodies that. Yeah. Um, and so even when the Israelites are worshiping, God says, like, I hate your feasts and your solemn assemblies. Yeah. Um, I hate that you keep the Sabbath but oppress your worker, right? You're following me with hollow hearts. And so a large piece that would help evangelicals get it better is if we read the prophets again. I didn't read them until college. It was like a part of the Bible. I was like, oh, I've heard about Isaiah. Um, but reading those words will change you. Um, so the, the social gospel, there's this response against it. And this is where most of us have actually found our theological home, is the response against the social gospel. It's called fundamentalism. Um, so there was this belief by a lot of people leading the social gospel that said, uh, well, it's now our duty to make the world perfect so that Jesus can come back, right? And so that theology was very controversial. And so many people said, that's not cool. We're going to make sure we're going to line up what we think is, is, are the facts and what the doctrine we believe. They called them the fundamentals of the faith, right? They published a series of books called The Fundamentals, and um, that ultimately becomes modern-day fundamentalism where there's this real attention to doctrine of being, like, doctrine is the measure. Like, is my church a good church. What's its doctrine, right? That's usually our category, right? Uh, and so we've arrived, and that's where I grew up. And so the churches, when I'm looking back on them, right, people, Christians, right, largely white Christians that really loved Jesus, that really loved me, that showed me what it was like to follow the Lord, right? Um, 
why were my churches predominantly white? And when I'm reflecting on this now, like this is like in the last few years, I'm realizing this, you know. And I'm, I'm reflecting on it and realizing, well, there's certain issues we chose to elevate and others we chose to dismiss as not important to our lived realities. And so while we're arguing about secular humanism, evolution in schools, relativism, things that matter, right, that you should have an opinion on, right? But while we're arguing about that, the war on drugs is happening. People are being thrown in jail, right? There are mandatory minimums. There are tough on crime policies supported by both political parties. We didn't, I never heard that in church. Things I heard called sin, you know, gossip, adultery, lying. Maybe I didn't love my neighbor well enough, but what does that even mean, right? It was all vague, abstract. It was much more about loving God, which is right, right? You're supposed to love God and be loved by him. But it was what were we elevating, what were we dismissing, right? I never heard racism called a sin from the pulpit. I never heard my pastor talk about economic exploitation, to say, hey, the people in this room that own a business, how do you pay your workers? I never heard that asked, right? And so our Christianity has become about ideas and not about the actions we're taking as followers of Jesus, right? And that's the place I found myself. So my church wasn't filled with these active racists who were Klan members or, or yelling racial slurs, but there were people who chose to say, these things don't really matter to me because I'm in this bubble where they don't affect me, right? And so... So often it's not that people are, I'm not trying to like, you know, say my church was evil, but we missed it because we chose to elevate ideas over people, right? And I'm not trying to demean ideas either. It's complicated, right? You see that there's nuance here. Ideas matter because ideas shape humans. But what do we choose to elevate and what do we choose to dismiss? One of the things you said uh, when we were talking about this and kind of preparing was um, what, what we choose to address in our church communities reveals who we care about. Um, and who we don't care about implicitly. So is that kind of the, that's the end of it. That's why our churches have become, not the only reason that, that we see, you know, uh, this subtle segregation. It's, you know, it just happens. Why does it happen? It's because we elevate certain topics and it shows what we care about and about the realities of other people that we dismiss. Right, and, and not that long ago, churches legitimately used scripture to segregate themselves. I mean, they, church, Christian evangelical churches were segregationist on principle because of what they believed about scripture, right? That's in the last 50 years. So sometimes it takes a much longer time to actually undo that. I and mean, we've just created a culture of silence around these issues and haven't actually directly addressed them. People can tell really quickly, right? And so um, we're suffering from this culture of silence instead of saying, hey, that was a sin and so the things we call sin are important to worry about, but we're, focusing, we're not focusing on the realities of people that are living in a different world than we are, right? So we want to be honest about our current social location, and there, there's, there's literally no help for us to lie to ourselves about what this room looks like, which is predominantly white, predominantly white community, um, mostly upper middle class. So that's where we are, Okay. And part of this experience for me is having to confess and apologize to this community that it's taken me, having been pastor of this church for three years, this long to talk about this, have this conversation. It's like, what the heck, Larkin? Like, why did it take this long? Um, been largely ignorant of this, uh, largely ignorant of the conversation, not aware that the conversation has been going on and have been more content just to focus on ideas, right? So um, we haven't addressed these issues sufficiently. We just haven't. We haven't talked about it. We haven't acknowledged it. And a lot of that's on me. Um, but that's not where we want to stay, right? 
Um, this is a lot of what's happening today is the result of me being friends with Daniel. So, um, you know, we want to we want to move forward out of this in some way. Um, so, help us understand some of the just the basic ideas of racial identity, of racism in our culture and in our city, even that we should start considering as we begin to take steps out of our ignorance to this conversation. So, when I had these kinds of conversations, you know, four years ago. America was um, a little less aware of current disparities based on race. Um, but now every time you look at your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, you see um, an example of police brutality, right? People are engaging with these ideas of systems of injustice more often. So I think there's a base level understanding, but I don't want to assume anything. So I'm going to start from kind of 101 stuff. Um, oftentimes we define racism as active racism, right? people that are actively discriminating, which happens. People yelling racial slurs, congregating around certain monuments, you know, things like that, the alt-right, whatever. Um, And that's wrong and evil, right? Um, But what we let ourselves off is the passive racism, right? How we benefit from systems that we didn't create, but we still benefit from, right? And so the easiest way I can explain it is that, you know, my my peach-colored skin tone, people assign value statements to me. Because of the color of my skin, isn't that bizarre? We assign value and character traits to a skin color, right? That should just be like, that's very strange, right? But we've been socialized into this to where that's normal for us. So people see this and they say, okay, innocence, worthy of the benefit of the doubt, trustworthy, righteous, competent, right? And so you see disparities like in hiring practices. Like right now, um, why can a white person with a criminal record be hired more often than a black person without one? Well, because if I have a criminal record, it's assumed, well, you, you probably had like a bad situation, you just had to do something. You know, like you probably thought through it really well and you just decided like, oh, I guess I'm gonna have to do this, right? Like that competence, that benefit of the doubt, that innocence. Um, whereas we've associated criminality and thoughtlessness, right, to blackness, these kind of things, right? And so we see the way that these value statements that we just operate in, it's this smog we have breathed in our whole lives, the way that that informs our perspective of the world. So America being a country that has enacted laws that have privileged, and, uh, it's based on this, this ideology of white supremacy. You can go back to the origins of this country and follow the history, right? This was like not a hidden thing. This was just what people believed, and you can see laws and practices and systems set up to benefit those people. And so now I find myself having not created these systems. I didn't create banks that don't give loans to people of color. I didn't create the public school system. I didn't create criminal justice problems. I wasn't around for tough on crime policies. But here I am, right? I moved to Nashville maybe when gentrification had already started, right? But. What, what's happening uh, is that we are on this walkway, like at the airport, right, a moving walkway. This is a helpful analogy from Beverly Daniel Tatum. You know, you get on it and then that one guy always tries to pass you, like running past you, you're like, bro, I'm like already moving. Anyway, <laughs> all right, I always have problems with those people. But you are actively being taken a certain way because of the currents of our culture, of our society. And so even if you are not walking fast on there, if you just stop saying, well, I'm not actively discriminating, well, you are still being carried a certain direction, right? And so what it looks like to faithfully fight systems that actually strip dignity from people made in the image of God is to turn around 
and actually fight against that current in our culture, right? Um, so that's a lot of ideas if you haven't heard those before and some of those could be very offensive to you. Some of those could be just like confusing. I, w- I will be around for a while after church and I would love to talk to you about those things. Um, but we're gonna keep going right now. And the system that you're talking about is largely invisible to the people that it benefits. Right. Because the problem is not that systems work, it's that they don't work for everybody. Right? We want systems to work. I want to be able to get a loan right, when I qualify for one. But when someone because of their skin color, can't get a loan from a bank because even when they qualify, that's messed up, right? And so we don't recognize there are systemic problems because the systems largely work for people like me, right? Yeah, great yeah point. so that's the key point there. When the systems work for us, when it benefits you, it's largely invisible to you. Um, so that's the reality. If we're beginning to want to take some of these steps, what does it look like for us to be, re- you know, we've been using this language of reconciliation. What does it look like for us to be reconciled to the other? Um, the other being somebody that's racially marginalized, somebody that's different in a socioeconomic way, and what does it look like for us to be reconciled to others in a more practical way? Yeah. So um, a lot of this I'm pulling from a guy named Chris Rice from the Duke Center for Reconciliation. He wrote a book called Reconciling All Things with um, a man named Emmanuel Katangole. It's an extremely helpful book. But he says the first language of the church in this, in reconciliation, cannot be strategy. It cannot be, well, how do I fix this quicker, right? White guys like me try to fix stuff because usually I've been able to fix stuff, right? We get used to our ability to save people and fix problems. And so he says, let's stop. And the first uh, language of the church is lament. This is something that if you are not in communities with people who are actually feeling the weight of the system, it's hard to understand. You have to pray the Lord would break your heart for what you see. Don't just scroll past a video. Don't just say, well, that's really bad, and then go on talking about whatever you were talking about. Uh, we have to reorient our lives around people's experiences that are different than ours. right? And so lament is this cry to God of saying things are not right in your, word, in your world, Lord. Make them right. And make them right through your church, please. I remember when last summer uh, when Flano Castile and Alton Sterling were murdered, my church and a couple other churches in Memphis had a lament service. And it's very rare for a white person to sit in a room and not share their opinion about things they feel passionately about, right? That's my experience. Um, being in a posture of listening is rare. And people were able to stand up and just express why they were angry or disheartened. Discouraged, right? Needing the Lord to show up. And sitting there and just listening to people pray to God really changed me, you know? When you hear honest lament, you don't criticize. <laughs> you don't have a strategy like, hey man, well, if you just did this, you wouldn't be sad. You just sit in it, right? We learn how to suffer with those who suffer, right? Mourn with those who mourn. Uh, And so reorienting our lives around suffering that isn't always native to us is important as a call for a Christian who has experienced much and now we are required to do much, right? In knowing Jesus, right? And, And we go there not just because it's another thing to do, because Jesus is present at the margins, Jesus is present with those who are powerless and who have been taken out of power. That's who he went to. And we experience God. Christianity only makes sense from the margins. When I grew up in the upper middle class white community, Christianity didn't make a lot of sense to me. 
There's all these hoops we jump through to make text make sense about money and privilege, right? And so when we actually locate ourselves with people who are suffering on the margins, the words of Jesus make a lot more sense, right? When the humble bring down the proud, it's like right now we gotta realize we are the proud, right? This is not a helpful text for us. (laughs) We should be like, oh crap, I am the one in power, right? Uh, Oh yeah, so other things I wanna say. Yeah, back to lament, I was gone. So uh, lament, there's three things to, to, I think, consider in this that are really, that's really helpful language for me. So Chris Rice talks about unlearning innocence, distance, and speed. I was kind of touching on that just now, but the innocence piece is recognizing though I'm not directly responsible, right? I'm complicit in a system that does not honor the dignity of God's image in his people, right? Um, so recognizing, letting go of innocence. We are very addicted to feeling innocent in America because then we can feel better than somebody else. Um, and we have to get rid of that. And that just comes through assessing ourselves constantly. Why did I do this? Why did I think that way? Being willing to always ask yourself, why? Um, unlearning distance is complicated in this bubble in Nashville. Right, when I've thought about this for weeks of like, what is the commission to people who, um, you know, go to a mostly white church, live in a mostly white neighborhood, probably went to a college that was mostly white people. Their best friends are mostly that way. Um, I think that the, the aspect of who you listen to is very important. Whose opinions do you value? Whose voices do you center? And so a simple place to start, because it's our job to educate ourselves. Yeah. Um, is when you look at the, the Christians you read, who are they? I recognize my bookshelf as a lot of older white men. Um, which doesn't mean they don't get it, right? But you need more perspective than that. Um, especially as Christians, right? When I read Dr. King, I was like, I don't think I've ever read a black pastor's words. A friend of mine from the west side of Chicago said a white man didn't ask him his opinion until he was 16 years old, right? What do you think? We forget, we overlook these things. We assume that we know. So who are you listening to? Yeah, and that'll help, uh, help you be more self-aware about those places of innocence because right. they'll be able to speak those words from a right. different perspective, which helps you unlearn innocence right. as well. So. And I had found myself very defensive when I'm following different voices. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, you know, I, I would push back saying like, no, like having orthodox doctrine matters very much, you know, I'm pushing back, and I still think that, right? But it's like negotiating, well, if your lived experience is different than mine, maybe I have something to learn about the image of God from you, right? And so listening to Christians as Christian people, um, and so honestly, I would recommend starting with Dr. King. The letter from Birmingham jail, he writes to white pastors who are just kind of like, yeah, we get that it's a problem, but like, why are, y'all, why are y'all in the streets doing stuff? He writes that letter to them, that's to, to me, I had my parents read that and they came to visit me in Memphis. My mom was um, very moved by it. She began to get it because of Dr. King's words because it's going through a Christian lens, right? We don't just talk about race as like this political thing. This is a Christian issue, yeah. right? And so when we give Christian language to issues of racism, of exploitation, then we actually have a Christian response now, right? Uh, and the last one is unlearning speed, the last idea. And it's just that you're not gonna 
show up next week and be like, here I am, reconciled, right? This is an ongoing process, and when you put time frames on people, you make them objects, and you make them, like, your project, right? Or you make yourself a project. You have to negotiate an identity, right? This is a deep thing. It's not like you're yourself and all your emotions, and there's this idea of race. This is a part of your identity, right? Negotiating what that means takes a long time. And so you don't just get to say, well, I I read that book by a black pastor, now I get it, right? I listened to my friend's opinion about this issue, now I get it. You might be starting to get it, but it's this ongoing process. And sometimes you'll experience something that shoots you way back and totally sets you back. Um, But it's this process. It's not this quick uh, strategy or end goal, but it's, it's an ongoing journey. Last thing before we open just for some table discussion, say a little bit more about it's our responsibility to educate ourselves and not yeah. just to go to our, um, our friend. So this is just something I learned being, like having this race 101 talk all the time is very draining, really for anyone, but especially for people of color who have to constantly be telling their white friends, like, oh, you're just now realizing this? Okay, let me just tell you all about this. Every <laughs> single time. Right? It's very exhausting. And I've been blessed by people of color in my life who have taken the time to have those conversations with me. But as they have talked to me more, and as we become deeper friends, they're like, hey man, why don't you read a book? <laughs> right? You need relationship, but you can learn some facts from some books before you start saying hurtful things. Right? Um, so that education, like I think it's my role. My role during the election was to talk to my parents about who they're voting for. Right? My role as a white person is to talk to the people in my circle who might not have had the same experiences the Lord has given me and explain how other people see the situation, right? Um, so it is, it is on me. One of our chief roles in, in, in reckoning with what it means to be a white person in America is to then go to our own communities, the people who scare us the most, most likely, who we're gonna have to show that we may have changed since they knew us when we were 12, right? And have those conversations is very it's very much so a challenge for us. So that it doesn't become tokenism, where you're just treating someone for their knowledge about racial right. issues. Right. You're not getting your punch card punched, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so what we're going to do for a few minutes is open up tables at your tables for discussion. Um, and the goal of this is that some of us in the room are external processors, and uh, we just need the chance to like say some things to begin to process, oh, this is a question that I think I have, or this is something that's been um, weighing on my heart throughout this discussion. And then what we're gonna do after about five or six or seven minutes of that is we're gonna open it back up for questions from you guys. So this, this really isn't to try and like have the entire discussion in six minutes. This is really giving you the chance uh, to unearth some of the questions in your own heart maybe and to write them down and to begin to process, begin the process of having the conversation. And you'll continue those conversations at lunch and throughout your life, at your house church and in your relationships, okay? So we're gonna take about six or seven minutes and then uh, I'll bring us back and we'll have some Q&A for about 15 minutes, okay? We're gonna, we're gonna enter into a time of Q&A um, and I know that we could all continue processing at our tables for a while probably. There's a lot of thoughts and reflections that we could all share, um, but uh, we can continue doing that through sharing some questions. Um, so over the past few weeks, a lot of you have submitted questions in, sort of into our question jar, uh, things that you were wondering about. So I'm gonna open up with a couple of these and then let that frame the rest of the questions that we asked. So the first question that um, we thought was helpful to address, um, is the goal for this church and every church to be racially diverse? 
you know, people have preferences, they have different cultures, they have different music style preferences and, you know, people just have preferences. What's wrong with people going to a place that they feel comfortable, especially if that is in a place of racial homogeneity? So talk, talk to us a little bit about that. So this question has so many angles to take on it. I go to a multi-ethnic church in Memphis, trying to be multi-class too. And like I said earlier, that's really complicated. Um, and so some people that have gone to the, my church, we've talked through it and it's like, well, you know, we want the church to look like the kingdom of God, but is that necessary on earth? A lot of really complicated questions that are live and worth, you know, talking through with people in community, discerning as a community, right? Um, but I think when we look at the church in Revelation, we see every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping God together, right? And if that's a vision of where we're headed, I think we, we bear witness and embody that reality here on earth. When churches are diverse, it shows that we have a greater allegiance to Jesus than anything else. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to recognize how deep your allegiances go to other things when you try to do that. When you want things to be your way, you don't like the different worship music. You don't like how long church just was. You don't like, uh, for real, I mean, you don't like different things because you're used to other things. And you, start, and you start realizing how much of an idol it was that you love Bethel and you don't listen to gospel music, Right? You start realizing things you hold on to with a closed fist as opposed to saying, Lord, what, what do you have for this community, right? Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, I was talking to a guy after the service, last service, um, and he was saying, you know, well, if we're trying to be a part of a neighborhood and this neighborhood is largely white, well, what's our role, right? And I'll say residential segregation has done a number on America, right? Neighborhoods don't look the way they do on accident. You can look that stuff up or come talk to me and I'll tell you about it. Um, so as you begin to live lives that are concerned about things that are not just inside your bubble, your friendships will begin to look different. And I think then your churches begin to look a little different too, right? It's really complicated. When I think about uh, a black church in Memphis, the, the black church has been a place that has been a place of safety and flourishing and thriving for people that otherwise um, get the short end of the stick every other time in, in society, Right? It's like, I don't want to blow up that culture. I don't want to blow up that institution. Like, end it, you know what I mean? Like, like, can, like integrate every church. Um, so it's complicated, right? But as you begin to care about things outside your just circle of concern, you will begin to actually meet people who care about those things too that are different than you. So if you uh, care about affordable housing in Nashville and you go to a meeting about it, right, Likely you'll meet people that are not like you that also care about that. When I go to a school board meeting in Memphis, I'm one of a few white folks in the room. When I go to a, a civilian law enforcement review board meeting in Memphis, I'm one of a few white folks in the room because white people are insulated from that experience largely. And so now uh, people of color that are directly encountering this system are there to learn and express their opinion and try to get things changed, right? And so now it's just level of mutuality. We care about the same thing, right? Now we're here together. Now our friendships look different. We're connecting on things. It's not just like, I came here to help you, right? It's not that paternalistic aspect of, well, I, you know, I'm pretty good at fixing stuff, or I have resources. I can do this for you. It's how do we empower people? How do we partner? How do we seek mutuality there? So uh, there's, there's a lot there. I think that the church begins to look diverse when the people in the church begin to care about people outside of their own group. So that goes back to what you were talking about, elevating certain issues over the others, and if, if a community only elevates issues that are um, 
that don't connect with people um, of a racial minority, that it's not going to be advantageous for them to be a part of that community. Um, so, uh, second question. Uh, is diverse leadership the only path to church diversity? So it's kind of a chicken or the egg. How do you, do you, you know, try and embody it in the church first and then let the leadership go after it? Or kind of how do you, how do you see that? I don't really see it as chicken or the egg, but I think, yes, if your church is a church that values multiple perspectives, then your leadership values multiple perspectives and embodies those perspectives. Um, if you're not listening to a pastor from a different racial or ethnic group than you, uh, you're probably not growing in ways you should be. You are stunting your spiritual growth, right? And so if this church begins to adopt these values and begins to see the importance of the image of God in every person, and friendships look different and church looks different, then yeah, you also have some pastors that look different, right? And that's just part of it. Uh, but that's not like a, well, we'll do this first and then see what happens. It's like, this is an ongoing process that all is coalescing, I think, at once, if it becomes a core value of, of ethos. Yeah. All right, let's open up for questions. Uh, raise your hand, ask a question, and then I'll rephrase it so we can get it on the recording. All right, go ahead, yeah. Sounds like interesting. Uh, how do you earn trust as a white ally in communities of color is largely the question I heard. And... Um, recognizing that faith plays a role in conversations around race and justice issues, right? Um, so I think that point that, so a lot of people that are passionate about issues of justice often come from some like political ideology or partisanship, or they were just taught this matters, and we haven't actually rooted that in our Christianity, in following Jesus, because we've lost these traditions of the actual words of Jesus and the prophets, right? Uh, and so I love that you're, thinking about these issues now through the lens of, well, what does Jesus ask me to do, right? What does following Christ to the margins look like here? Um, so the, the find, how do you earn trust? How do you develop trust and show sincerity and not just have this paternalistic, like, let me come fix things. Like, I can help you. Look, I have privilege, right? I think that you come in with this posture of listening. It is rare that you will enter a room as the minority and that then you will not speak your opinion, right? Not saying you, I don't, you know, maybe. Me, right? I will often come and be like, yeah, of course my opinion matters. Here's my opinion, you know? Um, so when you enter communities, don't go in just to fix stuff. Go in to listen, right? And learn and partner with. And when you are sincere to just like know someone's experience, people are gonna share, people wanna talk about themselves, right? We all do. And so there's not some formula about developing trust. It's just simply like, what is your posture? If your posture is fixing and running stuff, that's going to be this farce that's sniffed out immediately. If your posture is we come in and just do fun things for kids and then leave, they're going to know that's what white people do, right? But if you come in and say, I am willing to reorient my life and not have demands for how I get appreciated for this, that's a posture of listening and humility. Um, and that's just, a, and, and you know, that, that changes based on the person, right? Who you're talking to, what groups you're with. And once you develop, the more complicated question is, well, once you develop that posture and you're accepted into a community, then how much do you exercise your right to share your opinion, right? Then how much do you share of yourself? And that's more questions I'm asking now um, that are more complicated, but hope that answers your question a little bit. Good question? Yeah, so the question, if I hear you right, the question is, you know, how do we talk about 
reconciling race in our culture today when we can also look in the scriptures and see evidence of God seeming to prefer one race, uh, one people over other races, even at the expense of those nations' existence and all these things, particularly in the Old Testament. And uh, that, that's going to be an issue. I mean, wrestling with race in the Old Testament is, is a much deeper issue than we have time to today. Um, do you have thoughts? Well, I also yeah, have thoughts. Yeah, I definitely have thoughts. Go for it, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Right, Old Testament hermeneutics are tricky. Um, hermeneutics is just how you interpret oh. the Bible, yeah. So um, for me, my, my root is always the cross of Jesus, right? And so starting from there, knowing that Christ came down to people who were hostile in mind, enemies of God, to lay his life down so that people could have access to God, right? Both Jews and Gentiles, that to me is the defining reality, right? And so... God has, has chosen a people to show his love to, right, and, and, and actually attract people from around the world to that community, right, um, to the, the community of Israelites. Um, but, and now we see that God has said, okay, through Christ, I will reconcile those who have been against me, and everyone has access now. Uh, and so that reality of saying Christ comes down, sacrifices so that people can then come to know God and then create this community where actually other people who wouldn't have known one another know, know each other. So when, when Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman, right, that is, I mean, that is like as close as you get to a, an ancient world racial category, Samaritans and Jews, right? That disdain that Jews felt for Samaritans and, and Jesus goes right to that woman, right? And he shares with her, what is on her heart. And she brings her whole town, right? Who, who brings people to Jesus? Not the disciples. Disciples go in and they come back and like, we found cut like some food, I guess. She goes in, the Samaritan woman, the racial outcast, and she comes back and brings the whole town. This man told me all about me, right? And so Jesus is oriented towards going to those people that have been left out and then bringing them into his family. And that's actually how he builds his kingdom. Not through the people you would expect, but through the lowly, the outcast, Right? Um, and so we can, we can dive into more of that Old Testament question, but I think orienting it around what was the ministry of Jesus like is really helpful for me to understand who he seeks out. And for the Old Testament, I mean, you even, even see in some of the Levitical laws, there's provisions for the stranger, for the foreigner, for those that are um, not racially Israelite, but worship Yahweh. Um, it, it's more, I think, in, at least as I see it, more of a, a worship issue, not a race issue. Um, and that's a, a lot deeper conversation that we can go out to coffee and talk about. And the but. modern conception of race, the category of race, I mean, that's a post-1500 idea. So you have like these tribal identities, these group identities, but that's different than how we've racialized and, and, and ordered our world today. So those are actually separate categories, and I'd be happy to talk about the differences as well. All right, one or two more questions. That's Tabitha, important. let's go. So Abitha is your name? Tab oh, oh, that makes sense, Tabitha. Uh, I was like, cool name. Uh, Tabitha. Uh, she was saying, as a biracial Christian, what is my role in a community that is largely white, right? Growing up in white churches and not being sure what to speak to and what not to speak to. Um, one, I would say, I'm just like floored by your ability to stand up and say that. You know, so one, that's awesome. Um, I, I'm thinking about... Uh, a girl in one of my classes I was just teaching, she's a, a black woman who's Christian and um, in her you know, mid-20s, and she said she went to her Bible study. It was predominantly white, you know, and she said, 
uh, I'm really passionate about seeing more black women be in this Bible study, you know? And she was met with a response of, well, we don't really need black women. What we really need is Jesus, right? Right, that classic, you know, dichotomy. And it's like, well, duh, my, this girl wants Jesus here. That's why she comes to Bible study. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, right, but they're dividing this, right? And so uh, this girl said, no, like, this is, like, that's her lived reality. She's like, I want this to be a group that actually experiences other people's perspectives and cultures and how we learn about God because of that. And so she, though she's constantly, like, you know, told stuff like that, she still remain, keeps that passion and brings up her perspective. And so... I really, you know, respect the fact that you even ask that question, you know, and don't, I don't know, the fact that you ask is unbelievable to me. But um, finding ways to speak into the leadership here when you see something wrong, something that is overlooked, that was said and was offensive, come talk to Larkin. Um, I promise he'll listen. Um, and making sure your perspective is, is heard and that your dignity is valued, that you as a person made in the image of God, as a believer in Jesus Christ, is valued. Um, and your, your social location is never demeaned, your identity is never demeaned, um, but that it's only uh, lifted up and actually sees its full flourishing because you're a Christian in a Christian church. And to bring your perspective to bear for other potential people that be in the community, even if it's not yours, you, you have unique insight into things that I don't understand. So being able to speak on behalf of and say, we need to create the space, a welcoming space, a comfortable f space um, for this perspective based on your, your understanding and your lived reality, um, even that is just always super, super helpful. Um, so. And like one of my closest friends in Memphis is biracial and he's pretty much constantly confused about what his role is in the different, yeah, in the different environments. And so finding other Christians that also share your biracial identity and developing a community there, that's really healthy, right? That's not um, separating. Uh, that's actually a really healthy way to, to develop an understanding of what it means to be a biracial Christian in a white setting. Uh, because my friend is, he's really trying to figure that out, but he still just comes back to being confused a lot. And that's okay, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, so the question is, um, social media is a platform on which we can engage this conversation in many ways. What are the appropriate ways? What are not the appropriate ways? Um, I wanna say something real quick and then I'll get it to you. Um, so one of the things I'm learning right now, particularly through some of the reading that I'm having to do in my seminary program is about um, how basically as a white community, it's this elevating of issues. So, so we realize, oh, this is important to Jesus. We gotta do some stuff. It's a lot easier, and I'm not discounting the role that social media can play, but it's a lot easier to be like, oh, I'll retweet this guy, then oh, I'm gonna go sit on these meetings for urban housing re redevelopment in my community and like develop friendships with people. So we, it's the whole idea of paternalism where we, we wanna check off the box so we can feel good. We wanna do the block party at Aiken, and I'm like calling out myself here. Like I've led these, I've led our community into these areas where we've been paternalistic and said, we wanna check off the box, we wanna serve these kids, but it's only gonna be at arm's length. Like we're not gonna really engage it. So social media can only do so much. And um, so there, there are ways that you can use social media on this, but primarily we're gonna to have to get our hands dirty. We're gonna to have to like really get in and like develop relationships with people face to face, not just over social media, but considering the social media question, you can yeah. continue on that. Um, and it's a great, response. I also think that um, as you are coming to recognize the importance of different 
ideas about race and social class and injustice, that it is our duty. So one role that I as a white person have is to talk to other white people about issues, right? Because it gets really freaking exhausting for people of color to talk to white people, have the same 101 conversation all the time, always coming back to that, right? Um, and so one of my roles is to have that conversation, right? And so if you grew up in circles like I did, right, all white churches, and you put certain things out there, you're going to hook certain people into your comments, right? Um, and then how do you engage with that? So the grace and truth combination is always that, that a really hard balance. Uh, personally, I will put things out there sometimes that I think people will disagree with, um, but I will always respond graciously um, because it's not a challenge about who gets it more. It's all about, man, my, my hope is that we as Christians can make this beloved community that King talked about, right? Our goal is to get to that so we're, we are bearing witness what the kingdom of God can look like. And so I don't want to shame you. I don't want to have some snarky comment about Medicaid. Like, maybe. I might not be snarky. I'll have a comment about Medicaid, right? But um, that's not productive. How can we actually walk with people and say, you might be really somewhere very different from where I am. But how can I listen to you, right? I don't want to, if we're talking about listening to people's perspectives, that includes white people that we really disagree with, right? Um, and it means talking to our families in election seasons, right? It mean, and not just presidential, but local, right? Who are, what policies are we caring for? And how do they affect people that we ought to care about? So there's a, a space, I think, for social media. And one of the ways, this is my last thing, um, like who you, who you follow and what perspectives you hear, that's one really quick way to hear perspectives on current events that are not from your bubble, right? Um, so following um, a variety of different voices from people of color is really helpful on there. And that's not at all just the outsourcing, like, well, I do that, like he was talking about. It's just one way to begin to, to listen to a different perspective too. So it can be very productive. Another question? Brittany? So how do you, at the end you kind of changed what I thought you were saying, but how do you, uh, what I'm hearing is this divide between church and the real world, right? And how do you kind of address that? Um, so I think a, a key point that I'm hoping to convey this morning is that all the earth is the Lord's, right? There is no sacred secular divide, right? It's not just you're in ministry at a church and then you go work your job somewhere else. I mean, you glorify the Lord in your vocation wherever you're at. Um, and I think it's good and right for Christians if it's a, uh, a value you hold, right? If it's about an economic injustice, if it's about a, a racial injustice, to be in the streets with people because then you're going to understand things better, right? If you just watch it on TV, you won't get it. Being present with people who hurt and then want to do something about it, people that are constructive in their pain, those are folks you want to learn from, right? I've learned the most about how not to be a victim since moving to Memphis. Folks that have experienced legit pain say, I'm not a victim, that's not my identity, right? If I'm a Christian, I'm a victor, right? I'm not gonna be a victim. You can't be both simultaneously, right? I've learned so much about my own little like white boy emotionalness, right? From my friends that have really experienced something, you know? So I, I think being out there um, in proximity to people that hurt and wanna do constructive things with it is awesome and should be encouraged by the church. It's complicated when churches, right, don't wanna make partisan statements for fair reasons, but when you can say, like, okay, they just passed a travel ban and that's not welcoming to the vulnerable, right? And there's complicated things about that, right? But if people in your church want to march, go on and do it, right? Um, 
all of these things, your Christianity should inform the way you see issues of racial justice, of immigration reform, of health care. All of that is formed by the way you know Jesus. Um, and so when you're discerning what that looks like, come talk to your pastor, right? Um, and if, they're, if they say there's no relation between the two, you're probably at the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. So as far as some steps we're going to take, um, obviously what Daniel talked about in terms of having to um, unlearn speed, this is not like, okay, now we strategize. We're going to do some stuff. That's not what I mean by this, but do, don't want to leave us in a place of like utter, like, confusion like okay what do we, what do we do um so a few things personally that that we've kind of talked about and shared um one of them is you know we we want everyone to take a step you know we've talked about okay the only the only black folks you know don't need to be poor people like you need to know some people that are um like middle class like racially different from you so that you can begin to under understand that but at the same time we we want you to take a step so say something to that real quick and then i'll give the other other two Oh, uh, <laughs> but you're saying them. Yeah. Uh, it's been really important for me working in low-income African-American communities to have friends who are middle-class and black because then I can recognize what is a um, creation of growing up in generational poverty and what is a part of a culture that's not mine and not conflating the two. In white America, we conflate blackness with poverty. Uh, we conflate people of color with poverty in general, and that's not cool. Um, that is a reality because race has been used to oppress and exploit, right? And so you're going to see a higher correlation with that. But you need to know people that are in your social class that are racially different from you because then you can kind of have this, like, control group, like, oh, okay. Like, I understand what is coming from poverty, what's coming from a different culture. Yeah, so um, one of the ways that, I mean, that's a hard thing, just like, okay, I don't know anybody like that. What, what steps do I take? And that's a hard thing to, you don't want it to just be tokenism where it's like you just find some random person and you're like, I'm going to be friends with you because you're different skin color than me. Um, but, you know, you know so there, there can be some reality where you begin to listen to different people from different perspectives like we've talked about, where we get to listen to those things. Uh, but also some of the things that we're going to do as a community is trying to partner with churches that are predominantly black in our community. Um, not in a way that we try and come in and say, hey, we're doing this awesome event, you wanna join in with us, but hey, you're already doing things in your community. How can we partner together as sisters and brothers in Christ across racial lines, and how can we like, have meals together? How can we like, practice mutuality where we learn from you and get to listen um, and begin to develop relationships? So um, just so that you guys know, I've got meeting schedule with several black pastors that were within five square miles of, of this location that I'm trying to say, okay, how can we practice mutuality here? How can we take steps and just like begin to interact with people on that level? Um, another thing um, personally uh, that Daniel's talked about as well is just beginning to lay down our preferences about church. And this is just a tough one. It's like, as our community, uh, Lord willing, begins to be more racially diverse and reflect more fully the kingdom of God, there's gonna be things that we have to lay down about our preferences, about how church functions, about the music, about how I preach, about how we function as a community. It's just gonna have to change. So that's a big, big thing for us to be aware of. Um, and then speak just real briefly on community-oriented, um, educating yourself and speaking on behalf of systems of... Yeah, uh, there's just a lot, of, a lot of history to learn, a lot of... And, and I see history as a way to build compassion when you see people, when you know their stories. Just like you'd want to get to know your friend, right? We'll get to know the, the narrative of our country and why things are the way they are. Read about 20th century American policy. Uh, I have a lot of books I can 
offer you. But when you understand why neighborhoods look the way they do, why public housing is placed where it's placed, why there's no grocery stores, why there's no job opportunities, and why public transit sucks, you start to recognize systems. Um, and then you understand why people um, have not, it's not an even playing field, and why some people have worked really hard and not seen success, and you're less quick to judge, um, and you're more quick to, uh, to listen, so. All right, so we're gonna just kind of transition um, and just pray a brief communal prayer together. Um, so we're gonna put that on the screen, and you know, this is something we prayed uh, at the end of our Ephesians uh, sermon about uh, Ephesians 2, about being reconciled to one another. It's just a prayer of communal confession, of repentance. So I'm gonna invite Jared to come on up and play. And uh, so we're gonna pray this prayer and take communion together and then just kind of sing a closing song together as we, as we finish up. Um, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll invite you to go ahead and stand. We'll, we'll stand together and, and pray this. Our Father, we have built up walls that separate ourselves from people that are different than us. But those walls also shut us off from receiving your love. Break down those walls in us, O oh God. Help us to see that the way to your heart is through the reconciliation of ourselves with all of your people. Bless others and us that we may come to grow in love for each other and for you through Jesus. So across the barriers that divide race from race, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide rich from poor, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide people of different cultures, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide Christians, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. And across the barriers that divide men and women, young and old, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Confront us, O Christ, with the hidden prejudices and fears that deny and betray our prayers. Enable us to see the causes of strife in our communities and in our own hearts. Teach us to grow in unity with all God's children. Daniel's going to lead us in just a brief time of communion, and then we'll close out in a song of worship. So before we take any of the elements, um, I'm going to lead us in a time of confession. So you can uh, close your eyes and meditate on this and confess as I'm reading a few different things to think about. So we know a God who cares about every area of our life, even the areas we aren't used to confessing in church. So before we take the bread, sit in the presence of the Lord and confess where we have neglected to love our neighbor, where we have allowed the image of God in one of our brothers or sisters to be abused and have kept our silence. Let's confess that. And maybe you've been considering these ideas Maybe you've been wronged because of your racial identity and you feel a deep sense of anger. Let the Lord know. Confess that you have been let down by his people and his church. Ask to be given a renewed hope and renewed perseverance.
So in that spirit of confession, we recognize that Christ still came for us to reconcile us to his Father. So you can take the, the bread. And as Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Let me take the bread. It is only through his body and his blood that we can ever hope for reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. Only Jesus can trump our allegiances to ourselves and our own communities. And so I want us to now think before we take the juice, remember who Christ has made you. You are made in the image of God and your identity reflects a piece of who God is. And he said that that was good. Remember that you were dead and now you are alive because of Christ's work on the cross. And so as you take this juice in a moment, thank the Lord that he has reconciled you to himself and ask that he would show you how to, how to be a person that takes up the ministry of reconciliation now with your brothers and sisters in this world. You may take the juice. Father, we come humbly before you knowing that we, we just get it wrong so often. We know that we're sinful people. We know that uh, we often follow ourselves just wherever is best for us, Lord. Uh, Father, I thank you that through Jesus we can know you and that you are renewing us from glory to glory. You are changing us and transforming us. God, I pray that we would see the realities of your world and the injustice in it through your eyes, that it would be we would be motivated to go out into the world because of what you have done for us, that communion would not just be this private spirituality, but that your communion given to us would spread out into the world, and that because we have been reconciled, we would become reconcilers, people who are willing to listen to those we, we haven't, to sit quietly and learn. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reconcile us to yourself daily your new mercies every day. I thank you for your people here. I thank you that they um, have listened and want to care about these issues. And I thank you for the honest questions and the wrestling. Lord, I know you are in the questions when your people want to know you more. So I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you for the work of your son on the cross. May that be what our eyes stay on today. In your son's name I pray.